Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, why are female founders still having to put up with things like the Startup Muster Report and Sam Joel's misogynistic rants, and what are we going to do about it? Christian Hunter from Techstars and Nikki Chigano from Scene Culture join me to try and work it out. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the Startup Rundown for Tuesday the 14th of November. Have you ever wanted to go vegan or vegetarian but found you're also partial to the odd hamburger or two? This Aussie startup could have the solution. According to Business News Australia, the cultivated meat startup Magic Valley is set to scale up production after moving into a state-of-the-art facility at the bio-innovation co-working space, CoLabs. The Melbourne-based startup cultivates meat that is reported to be indistinguishable in taste from traditionally farmed sources by simulating cellular behavior using bioreactors. Founder Paul Bevan stated that the scale-up will allow the company to produce 150,000 kilograms of product per year. We all know that the job market can be an extremely inaccessible place, and this Melbourne-based startup is helping to change that. According to Startup Daily, ApplyCart is an end-to-end hiring service targeted at job searchers from younger and older demographics, as well as migrant communities, helping them overcome language barriers, difficulties showcasing their skills, and limited professional networks. The startup boasts a user-friendly experience, prompting users with simple questions to build their profile rather than asking for a pre-written resume. Founder Bharati Babar stated that 70% of jobs are found from word of mouth and social networks, and she hopes to open this method of job searching to people who have previously been excluded from the workforce. In AI wearable news, Humane has finally taken the wraps off its first device, the AI pin. The device is a $699 US wearable that magnetically attaches to your clothes or other surfaces and includes a mic slash speaker, a camera, and a small built-in projector. Unlike other devices, it isn't always listening. It's activated by a tap, and then you can use voice recognition to send messages or summarize your inbox for you, use the camera to identify food and give nutritional information, and real-time translation. You can also project things like who is calling you onto your hand. All sounds interesting unless you've watched enough Star Trek to know this is no com badge or enough Black Mirror to know this is likely one of the ways the world comes to an end. So I'll stick to my phone for the moment, thanks. And finally, if you've looked at the job that Elon Musk is doing at managing X or the platform formerly known as Twitter and thought, I'd love to let that guy put a microchip in my brain, you're in luck. Decrypt reports that Elon Musk startup Neuralink is now recruiting an unknown number of U.S. volunteers for human trials after receiving FDA approval in late September. Musk has announced that the company is working on an implantable vision chip to cure blindness. However, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has urged the company to cease animal and human experiments after reports that trials to date have killed over 1,500 animals. Neuralink has so far been undeterred, moving forward with its developments as planned. And I'm sure we have nothing to worry about because, after all, the AI pins are going to kill us first. 
And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. So it has not been a great fortnight for female founders and people who support them. First, there was the release of the 2023 Startup Muster Report, which, as we reported last episode, included a list of Australia's most recommended mentors, which were all male, and then retracted it and added an equal number of women and somehow created even more of a mess. And then GiveTree founder Sam Joel gave us a gift that no one wanted in the form of a LinkedIn meltdown with a series of attacks on women in Australia's tech industry and subsequently resigned. The data tells us that startups with female leaders in their team outperform male-only founded startups, and yet women remain not just the subjects of insults and attacks, but severely underrepresented when it comes to VC funding. To try and unpack this and find a way forward, I'm joined by Kristen Hunter, Managing Director of Techstars, and Nikki Chigano, founder of Scene Culture. Kristen and Nikki, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thanks so much for having us. Cheers. So we heard in the intro the main issues that people have raised with the Startup Muster Report. They've been pretty well persecuted in the online discussion at this point, so we don't need to rehash all the details. So let me kick off by asking you two questions. One, how much of a surprise was the original report to you? And secondly, what does it say about the wider startup ecosystem? For me, sadly, it wasn't too much of a surprise. In some ways, it's a little bit actually validating of part of the conviction for what I'm building because it's so prevalent, this, this problem of, you know, lack of representation when it comes to how we profile big influencers in any given ecosystem. So wasn't that surprising? What was surprising, however, was the lack of rigor around the methodology for how they conducted the research and surveying, et cetera. And so that's the thing that I would expect to have been done at a much more higher caliber, given the um, yeah, I guess the exposure that it gets and and how it helps lend some insights in the decision makers in the startup ecosystem too. Mm. Kristen, what about you? Um, yeah, I think like Nikki, it wasn't really a big surprise to me. And in fact, when I first saw it, I actually, I noticed it, but I thought, you know what, you got to pick your battles and <laughs> I'm just going to let this one go through to the keeper. Like I'm, I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I'm disappointed, but you know, there, there are far worse things happening at the moment. And it was only after seeing some of the response online that I kind of, I suppose, came in and sort of shared some perspectives on it. So I guess what was a surprise for me was the level of the backlash and the level of support within the community to sort of stand up and say that, you know what, we're not going to accept this anymore. We're not going to accept a list of eight top mentors and them all be male names. So I think amidst all of the sort of the frustration at the methodology, there is some hope that the conversation is changing. The conversation is certainly becoming much more widespread. And so I think that was kind of the thing that I took away from it. And then it's always one of the silver linings of these kinds of experiences is the new people who you meet, who you share the same beliefs with. And so there've been a couple of new advocates for equality within the ecosystem that I've met as a result of this report. So, you know, little, little hidden advantage. So when, when we think about these awards and lists, obviously one argument is they're just fraught, right? Because someone's always left out when we're acknowledging someone else. Is the answer just scrapping them or is there a better way to do it? 
I think there's absolutely a better way to do it. And looking at the, the method, methodology that Startup Muster had used, they actually point out that they identified they they identified startup ecosystem influencers and used them to promote the survey, which means that by design, there is implicit bias in who they've actually sourced insights from, which speaks to why there is such a lack of representation in a lot of the outcomes that are there. Mm. But I actually spoke to Murray afterwards just offering some ideas and perspectives on a better process for how they can really help mitigate against this. And what I think a lot of it starts with is a representative and diverse steering committee, you know, ensuring that we're, we're really capturing different uh, perspectives, not just from an, you know, agenda point of view, but from, for instance, even a geographical point of view, like one of the most obvious issues with the data was that only 17% of the data came from Victoria when we know that there is such a bit much bigger population. And, you know, Scotty, you were just telling me that you're based down here as well. And so those sorts Center of, of the startup universe as far as I'm concerned, right? Like, so, so we should definitely be represented. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think to your point, Nikki, like, those demographic factors, which were sort of shared at the start of the report, you know, that would have been the perfect time to acknowledge the limited sample size and to put some caveats around the data, the reliability, but instead it was just kind of reported quite factually. This is where the, the founders have come from. This is uh, their makeup. And I think that was a real missed opportunity from the get-go to try and make this data more representative of the community itself or to sort of strive to push that little bit further. To come back to your question around awards and lists, I mean, I think the the big question for me is what's the purpose of having an award or what's the purpose in having a list? Because if it's something like we want to know who gives the most high quality advice, who are the hidden gems in our ecosystem that people don't know about, but actually when they're having those conversations with founders, they give incredible advice that really cuts through that people act on. That's interesting to me. Whereas something that's just, I think the way the question was asked was the most recommended mentors is way yeah. less interesting because there's certain people within the ecosystem, and I have the privilege of being one of them, who get paid to spend a lot of time mentoring startups. And so that means that the breadth of advice that people who are in those roles can have, the number of startups who they have the opportunity to impact is much greater than, say, someone who is mentoring on top of having a full-time executive role in an industry or in a startup. And there's a real privilege in being able to give away your time for free that I think not mm. everyone is lucky enough to have. And so mm -hmm. a list that is framed in this way of the most recommended kind of biases towards those systemic factors that make it easier for certain people to be able to spend more time with more startups giving advice. And then to Nikki's point as well around the distribution, I think you can see the distribution pathways in the list of most recommended mentors, in the list of most recommended, you know, co-working spaces, accelerators, all those kinds of things. And so we can almost see how the survey has spread within the community by the results that have come back on those areas. That's quite interesting. But yeah, so I think in terms of the list, it's a lot more to do with, with why we want to share that information. What is it that we're hoping that the community will take away from a list of best mentors or most recommended mentors or, you know, most popular mm. mentors? And then framing the way we ask that question and how we collect the data in order to be able to give 
that information to the community. I, I love that. You know, I'm a, I'm a product person, so we're constantly asking why. What is this for? Why are we doing this? And to me, the main surprise was not so much that result. It was the fact that it actually got published. And with just a note saying, we hope for a greater gender representation next year, because to me, you know, I think you look at that and go, oh, we really didn't do this well. We need to reframe this and do it again. And so there's something I think that said in that as well, that it actually got out. That honestly, to me, was the surprise, not not the composition of the list. And just to extend on that, I I do see a great deal of value in having these lists that recognize people who, you know, truly do have positive impact within the networks that they're a part of. It's it's literally our innate human need to want to feel recognized, seen and acknowledged for our contribution. And so I I think it's very much in what does it mean when you're on the list, but what does it also mean when you're not? And that I think is what people are responding to here, right? Mm, it's because mm. it, it almost speaks louder, those people that feel like they've been overlooked. And and what's happened here is that, you know, half the half the population have been completely overlooked and dismissed as as seen through the outcome of just having a male list of mentors. And it it's really just a reflection of the, the startup ecosystem not being isolated to what we experience within our workplaces and within organizations. Yeah. You know, there's, for instance, more than 40 to 45% of women, they leave tech companies compared to men, which is like 17%, by the age of 35 due to conditions that undermine their value, their expertise, and this feeling of being stalled in their career because they've been passed over pr- for promotion. Mm. It's And it's exactly what we're seeing has happened now in this startup ecosystem, but on, on another scale, right? Because they're even in the startup ecosystem, there are even more powerful, influential, you know, investors that are driving the course of the new evolution of businesses that are coming through. Mm. Like the compounding impact is incredible. Yes. Yep. And, and I think part of what you're saying Angela Priestley from Women's Agenda has said this is a symptom. This isn't just a an isolated incident. It's a symptom of this wider issue that you're talking about. So what are some other examples, maybe even some from like super recent history that you could kind of articulate that either you've seen or that you've experienced that also illustrate the challenges that female founders face in this space? Well, the, the obvious one that I think you've you're potentially alluding to is obviously all of the uh, media attention that Sam Joel has been getting from from GiveTree. I am someone that has personally received some, shall we say, comments, <laughs> to put it nicely, <laughs> from comments. Sam Joel. Non-constructive <laughs> comments. <laughs> yes, exactly right. But like not even just from him directly, like posting on my my posts on LinkedIn uh, messaging me directly, but also actually having been reported directly to Techstars of their decision to select me in the Techstars Accelerator program over and above him. And so actually saying to Techstars, have you seen who is getting in there? This is an example of incompetence, of posturing, of a number of ways in which They've apparently made a really bad decision for selecting me for their investment in the accelerator program. 
That is so interesting. I mean, that's terrible. It is. Yeah, which is obviously rubbish because Nikki is an incredible founder building an incredible business. (laughs) But it is, I might just sort of build on Nikki because on Nikki's point, I should say, but, you know, like Nikki, I've had sort of several months of backwards and forwards with this person and hearing second or third hand of comments they have made about me to people with influence over me, you know, commercial partners right through to the Techstars CEO. But I think there's been quite a few people, Jesse Wu in particular, has really called this out strongly in the last couple mm-hmm. of days. What's interesting about the whole Sam Joel affair, let's call it, is that he was just the guy with no filter who's willing to say what a lot of mm-hmm. other people think. And and I think that's that's what's really at the core of this is I don't know a single woman founder or woman investor who was surprised to see those kinds of comments. What surprises us is that someone is willing to say them out loud and in writing and over several months. Normally mm. we get these messages in much more subtle ways. We get them through, for example, the pushback that I get around the investment decisions and the feedback that I give to founders around why they have or have not been accepted. We see it in the type of f- feedback that female founders get compared to male founders where, and again, like I'm in the position of working across a cohort of 12 companies. And so in our most recent Techstars cohort, we had seven female CEOs and five male CEOs. And overall, this is generalizing from still a relatively small sample, but I would say that the female founders and female CEOs, the feedback that they got from investors was very personalized. It was things like, Mm -hmm. you are not technical enough. You don't have the right support around you. How are you going to compete with the major competitors in your industry? Whereas Mm. the feedback that the male CEOs and male founders get is much more business related. It's, hey, come back to us when you're at $20,000 monthly recurring revenue. It's not you as an individual human are incompetent to hold your role, which is sort of like the the message that you get. And these might all sound like fairly small, trivial examples, but when you get them day after day, week after week, year after year, as a woman in investing or a woman founder, you have to have an incredibly unshakable sense of self to be able to keep going. And who among us has that? So it's no surprise Mm -hmm. that there are so few women in investing and so few women founders who were able to keep going amongst all of that kind of subtle resistance mm. that if you call it out, it's almost like you get accused of being the crazy one who's making things up or who is blaming the patriarchy for your own inadequacy as a founder to be able to raise capital or build a business. And yeah. so you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. One thing that we know, and this is where I think this to me is so confusing. We know that founder teams with at least one female member outperform male-only teams by as much as 63%. So where is this disconnect happening? Why is there such a disconnect between the the rates of these success measures and the stats around how few female-led startups get funded? Yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated and complex problem, I think. And there's no silver bullet. If there was, we would have fixed it a long time ago. (laughs) But I think there's no way to answer that question without looking at bias, both at the individual level and also the systemic bias overall, that sort of tends to prefer or tends to imagine that business is the realm of men. You know, like all of the kind of business heroes who we lionize, they're all men and they're most likely going to be white men at that. 
the the stories of startups tend to be, you know, the young software engineering dropout who mm, built mm-hmm. the product in their parents' basement. So mm-hmm. one, they're privileged enough to be going to university. Two, they're privileged enough to have parents with a home who they can live in rent-free or close to rent-free. But it's a very narrow slice of the startup community. And I'm I mean, if there's one thing that we can sort of take away from the startup muster report, all of the problems aside, is that even within a relatively limited sample, there's a huge array of diversity within our community. There's Mm -hmm. a lot more older founders now coming into the ecosystem. There's founders with different sort of cultural backgrounds. And I think what's really interesting to me, as you said, is that it's not just gender diversity, but diverse teams overall perform better because you have a greater number of perspectives, different thought processes, problem-solving processes, all of that contributes. But, I mean, really, I do think it comes down to the systemic bias but also the individual bias of the investor. And I was at a panel, the Where Are All the Men panel during South by Southwest, and I think it was Hannah Moreno, actually, who very succinctly put it where she said, if your portfolio as an investor has a lower proportion of women founders than the founder community, you have bias in your investment process. It is as simple as that. And so it's up to each individual VC firm and each individual investor to examine their own biases, to look Mm. at the data around what what companies and who they're investing in. Look Mm -hmm. at the type of founder that makes their heart flutter and get them excited. Is it Mm. a big, confident, fast-talking young white dude? Or is it people who are more considered and thoughtful in their approach and might not promise this universe denting change, but might be a bit more realistic in the change that they are promising? And so I think that's a that's a process for each indi- individual investor to undertake. But Nikki, I'm sure you've got lots of much more well-informed thoughts than me to add. What I might provide is a different perspective. I mean, Kirsten really covered well the importance of understanding where our unconscious bias is at play and how this helps to in some ways reinforce this recurring Mm. problem that we're that we're seeing and for instance capital going to the same kinds of founders or startups and I think the other thing that we need to reflect on as well beyond this is the is well there's obvious obviously macro factors at play that recognize that raising in this current landscape is is tricky And as a result, what that means is a lot of investors are being more conservative in their decisions with where to invest. Mm. And what it means to be more conservative is look for what uh, they know works well, you know, what what they've seen in the past. And so they're looking at um, examples that that demonstrate or that give them a little bit more safety in the decisions that they Mm. made. And so what they're effectively doing is pattern recognition, right? Yeah. And what that means is if you're someone that, for instance, looks like me, I, I don't fit the bill of someone that an investor has previously selected as a startup, particularly as I just found out on Friday, actually, I went to an event uh, that was all around empowering female founders for the future. One of the key um, insights that came off the back of that was that, okay, so we know that 3% of funding goes to, goes to women and that's a whole thing. What I didn't realize is that 0.03% of funding goes to women of color. And that's not even putting on top of uh, the fact that, for instance, I'm a solo founder, Mm. which adds another and you're like, whoa, okay. So there there literally are very, very few, if any at all, examples of 
something like this being shown to have been performed, like being successful moving forward. And I think that's part of where the problem is. It's it's not that there aren't necessarily isn't evidence for it. It's that people are relying on pattern recognition, which is subject to bias innately that they're not willing to take a bet. But the biggest problem is that they believe that these are the indicators for predicting success. Mm. And that is that is where the biggest mistake is. Yeah. So interestingly, I've been reading Hidden Potential by Adam Grant, who's just released that that was just released literally a couple of weeks ago. And I, I like to position it as like the book for scene culture because it's all about how do you identify who those hidden gems are that actually have incredible, incredible impact. And, you know, the the TLDR is that it's actually about, you know, the character of an individual that is the biggest leading indicator mm. for someone's future potential. So it's much less about past f- performance. In fact, contrary to popular belief, research shows that past performance is almost irrelevant to future potential. It's, it's actually what are the ways in which people have responded to hardship challenges that informs most how well they can do in the future. Mm. So the, the ultimate marker potential being not so much the, you know, what they've done in the past, but how far have they traveled? What are the challenges that they've overcome that demonstrate their grit, their resilience, their conviction, and their genuine motivation and belief to solve for this problem and to be the right person to pursue this? Mm. I have always, I think, felt like a bit of an outlier in this space because I, I grew up in the, in the States. I grew up outside of Chicago and in where, you know, I think I was like in the first grade when schools were integrated. And so I grew up with a very mixed friendship group. I grew up with and graduated like with a, a sense that we would be looking back now and going, I can't believe that all of this racism and discrimination used to exist. Like we really were, I think, obviously very idealistic. And then LA riots happened, you know, September 11th, et cetera. But I'm that throwback where I came here. (laughs) And so it's something that I think what I learned from that experience was that diversity has to be deliberate. It isn't just something that just happens. And that to me is where that, that line of, how how do you do that without appearing that you're giving people preferential treatment, et cetera? And part of it has to be understanding privilege and understanding that because what I didn't understand at the time growing up was that while I had friends from different races, my black friends were living a completely different life to what I was because while the laws changed so that they could come to a school that I went to, Lots of other things were put in place to try and keep them where they were financially and physically, and that still exists in the states today. Most of the states is so racially segregated; you don't see that on on television. And it is so I, I didn't understand that, and I didn't understand that part of it of the the privilege that's there. But, but where do we start? It feels insurmountable. So, what are some ways that we can be deliberate without? Or maybe we can't be deliberate without incurring that criticism that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're favoring, et cetera. But where do you see that we can go from here? I mean, hopefully the only way we can go from here is up, right? Because I think we're, <laughs> we, we have been 
having this conversation for a very long time, but the numbers haven't been moving. The, the numbers in terms of the proportion of dollars and the proportion of deals that include at least one female founder just has not been changing. And we have such a rudimentary conversation around diversity in Australia. We only talk about gender and we only talk about gender in a very binary. Yeah. There are layers upon layers upon layers of diversity that we don't even touch here. And that's something that I think for me as an investor, I'm very grateful and very lucky to be working for an international player like Techstars because my you know, overall employer came out of the US, came out of a much more robust conversation around diversity in investing. And one of the really interesting things as a core value of Techstars is that good ideas can come from anywhere. And it's something that's actually built into the investment thesis. And so for me as an investor, thinking about what can I do to maximize the likelihood that I deliver outsized returns to my LPs? I need to be thinking about not just who do I think on a gut instinct level is, you know, confident enough and um, going to go out there and shoot the lights out and succeed, but what is the data telling me about who's most likely to outperform? And so for me, I have a positive screen towards female founders, towards founders of color, towards founders who have been, as Nikki was saying, been through situations that show their grit, their tenacity, their ability to keep going mm -hmm. when things get hard because startups mm -hmm. are hard. And, and not only that, I think uh, there's a couple of structural things that Techstars has built into the process. So we have a partnership in the US with JP Morgan that is specifically focused on creating opportunities for Black and Latinx founders. You know, like what an incredible way for founders who might not otherwise get the opportunity to be a part of a global accelerator like this through all of the systemic and personal biases that we've been speaking about to have that kind of not just opportunity to participate, but to see others participate and to see role models who can do the things that they do. For me personally, some of my compensation is linked to creating a diverse cohort of founders, which I think wow. is just such an incredible statement by Techstars of That's where fantastic. its values lie and making that something that is not just an ethical nice to have, but an economic reality for me as an individual, as well as me as a fiduciary investing my LP's money. And so I think there are a couple of really easy, tangible things that there's no reason why other funds in Australia couldn't have a target around the diversity of their portfolio, couldn't link the, the compensation of the GPs who are working for the fund to mm. being able to deliver a diverse portfolio of founders. And to be honest, I think that there is some opportunity for LPs to come in and really throw their influence around because it's their money that these VC funds are investing. And they're mm. giving that privilege to invest on behalf of them because they trust mm. them to, to make smart economic decisions. But actually the data tells me that all of the VC funds are leaving money on the table for investors because founding teams that are more diverse with at least one female founder are more likely to outperform. And yet they're so, so vastly underrepresented in the, in the mm. numbers. Mm. And so, you know, we talk about not wanting to give opportunities to people who don't deserve it. Well, we already are doing that. We just don't mind because they look like us. Just to double click on Kirsten's comment around like the, the different ways in which we can be diverse. It's certainly something that I am intentional about bringing light to. I, you know, diversity of demographic is often what gets reported on. And, and I see that largely as a symptom of where the actual source of the problem is, which is around making sure that we're capturing diverse perspectives, diverse ideas diverse life experiences mm. and, you know, diverse motivations and values and, and all of these sorts of things. 
And so, you know, I, I think like in terms of what we can do, it's really understanding how we can better identify mm. and assess and measure those other elements beyond just the demographics, because that is ultimately the driver for greater diversity in the different networks that we're a part of. And so certainly for us anyway, at seeing culture, a big part of our focus is how do we identify that? You know, it's our, it's our mission, for instance, to shine a light on that untapped potential and recognize people for who they are beyond just their position title, mm. you know, despite being underrepresented, neurodiverse or introverted. It's really recognizing what are those innate things that make them, you know, unique and incredible at what they do that are actually the indicators for well-being, motivation and performance. And, and I say this as someone that used to do research and teaching in this space mm. of um, the key things that I think need to be certainly embedded to create systemic change when we're trying to put people of, um, uh, of power in, in decision-making roles that really set the tone for how we identify whether it's new candidates into new positions, new promote new leaders into positions or promote or invest in new startups or founders in this. It's, it's, it's looking back to those elements that contribute to performance outcomes. And I think drawing the connection between how diversity leads to a competitive advantage and making that the, the key message is what I believe will be the thing that moves the needle. Mm. I mean, and that was in my, that original question, that sense of like, we know statistically that startups with a female in the team perform better. And we think that we make decisions based on economics and profitability. And yet there is that disconnect. So I, I really love those points. When we think about tying goals around diversity to performance, there are laws that have been signed in in California, in the US, requiring VCs to report on their, their stats around the diversity of the startups that they invest in. There's discussion about that happening here. Do you think that that is necessary? Do you think it's valuable? Is there a different solution? What are your thoughts on that? I actually spoke to Tracy Warren just on Friday, who was the person that pioneered the whole initiative. Do I think it's necessary? Yes. Do I like that it's necessary? No. <laughs> it's part of what ensures that we have uh, representation of pipeline mm. coming through. Mm. One of the things that we do need to be conscious of, though, is that uh, investors aren't at risk of doing what's called gender washing or social washing, where they're they're opening themselves up to now take more meetings with diverse founders or that women of color, for instance, without any actual real intent yep. to give them any capital, yep. right? Because that ends up wasting our time, <laughs> you know, they'll, and, and they're just getting us on, on their records to, to demonstrate that they're doing this, that they're bringing more people into their pipeline. But the real the real test is whether they're actually, the capital is actually going there, not just the people coming to the pipeline. And I think that that's the next step yep. of how we can really measure the impact of something like this. Mm. I, I see that often, I feel, in the way that a lot of accelerators, uh, incubator programs promote their cohorts, is that there's a very diverse picture of participants that are represented but what we don't see is that same diversity in who actually gets funded. 
And it's one thing that we're quite interested in this program at looking at is the real efficacy of those programs. There is a difference about <clears throat> who gets funded. It's the same with pitch nights, which I, I am quite tired of, to be honest, because of the same deal where you, I, I've been to that many pitch nights where the most compelling product has been presented by a diverse, a founder, a non-white, under 30, cisgendered <laughs> male, and yet somehow they still win. You know, it's, it's just kind of just that crazy thing where, and I do think that's why we do need those, those benchmarks is because we know that our inherent bias is simply a factor that can't be mitigated on its own. I think that the challenge will be, you know, look at the, in California is a bit of an outlier where the state is politically at the moment and the Supreme Court abolished affirmative action in university placements. And so it's, it's a constant pendulum. Did you have any thoughts on the, that legislation question, Kristen? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm very in favor of anything that increases transparency into the data and pushes VC funds to stop talking and start acting. I do think that legislation around data disclosures will be an important step, and I think it is coming. Um, I hope it is coming. But um, what's interesting is not just kind of the data that's disclosed, but then what gets done about it afterwards. And so I think that's where the pressure from the ecosystem, from investors, you know, from governments as well can come into play to, to make it so that it's not just about disclosing numbers, you know, and then sort of saying, oh, well, sorry, we didn't do very well this year. Well, what are you going to do to do better exactly. next yeah. year? Yep. And, you know, like I spent 10 years in corporate spaces before coming across to startups. And at the time, there was a lot of focus on promoting women through to partnership and getting a higher representation of women on boards. And so I think the the missing sort of piece of the puzzle here is the, you know, the big, big, bad Q word quotas. And, you know, anytime you mention a quota, there'll be someone who will say, well, you know, we shouldn't have a quota because, you know, a woman or a marginalized person shouldn't just get a spot as a tokenistic kind of mm. gesture. Mm. Or there's this idea that if we have a quota, then that means that people who are somehow less worthy are going to be offered an easy ride into, into spots that they don't deserve. And again, I would sort of say like, that's the status quo at the moment. It's just the status quo for who we perceive to be um, entitled to take up those roles. Unless you're someone, I will say, unless you're someone who believes that talent and intelligence is not evenly distributed within the population, unless you're someone who believes that white men are smarter and better at running businesses than women or people of color, you know, those people do exist, sadly, but if you're one of them, this point is not for you. You've got other sort of conversations and learning to have. But if you genuinely believe that intellect and talent is equally distributed across the community, but you're not seeing that in leadership, then I think you are accepting that less quality people are taking up those leadership roles than otherwise could be. And so a quota system is just a way of trying to even that playing field and create opportunities for people from underrepresented backgrounds to get the positions that they are deserving of having, but they're being held back from because of structural and systemic inequalities. I might just sort of say as well, Scotty, you mentioned accelerators and I sort of wanted to comment on this because I think accelerators have such a great opportunity being a cohort-based selection model to really sort of demonstrate what good looks like when it comes to building a really diverse portfolio. 
But I think in order to do that well, we need to be really honest about the numbers and what they really mean. So a lot of, I mean, a lot of investment firms, a lot of accelerators as well, will have targets around things like, you know, we want to have at least 40% or 30% or whatever the number is. So 40% of companies that have at least one female founder, Mm. that's great, except what does that overall sort of demographic group of the founders that you've selected look like? Because if you've got a bunch of companies with three male founders and then 40% of them that have one female founder and two male founders, your overall representation of women within your founder cohort is probably 10 to 15%. You know, that's actually not representative. And then the other thing as well is what role do those female founders play within their teams? Because it shouldn't just be about having at least one woman on a team. It should be Mm. about having women in position of leadership, having women only founded teams, Mm. having sole female founders who are exceptionally good at their building their companies and have decided to do it, you know, by themselves and surround themselves with advisors outside of the co-founder relationship. And so for us, you know, we had in our accelerator most recently, we had uh, 58% of companies who went through had not just at least one female founder, but had a female CEO. So our accelerator, uh, our demo day for the Techstars Accelerator, you saw seven presentations from women and five from men. And so mm. it was just a completely different experience to, to see all of these powerful, capable, competent women take the stage and tell the story of their business that you just don't normally see because the numbers of businesses with female founders are lower and where they are present, often they're not the one in the CEO position. So let me wrap up with a, a question. This The audience for our show is bootstrapping founders. It's early stage. And as an early stage founder myself, how can we be deliberate and conscious about diversity in these early stages? It's something that's, I think there are values that are easier to have than to execute and in terms of what, what that looks like. So for our early stage founders that are listening from whatever population they come from, how do we do this? What are the steps that we take in right from the beginning to ensure that we are recruiting and serving in a way that reflects the values that we've talked about? Uh, one thing that I would say, a couple of things actually, is to be really intentional about checking your bias and understanding what biases you might have. For instance, a couple of a couple of interesting like uh, psychological biases that I often speak about is the Dunning-Kruger effect which is where we often mistake confidence for competence. And if you are, for instance, recruiting for new talent, the the people that tend to be the most impressive in a stereotypical interview setting is the person that's the extroverted, compelling communicator rather than the introverted, you know, quietly spoken Mm. yet incredibly intelligent, you know, operator. And, And so that would be one thing that I would think about when looking for potential talent in their teams. But the other thing to be conscious of is also what is known as the affinity bias, where we tend to have a preference for people who are just like us. They, you know, because we find common ground very easily, maybe we have a similar background, we went to the same university, or we have similar interests. And what that means for how it might bias our decision making when it comes to who we select. And and this is one that's really hard to combat because on the same, you know, on the other hand, you also want to make sure that you're selecting people that you get along with. And, and this tends to be people that are similar to you in that nature. But, and so you have to be really intentional of going, okay, 
but is this person being complementary to our team? Are they bringing a different um, perspective that we can really uh, benefit from? And are we really leveraging the fact that, you know, they, they bring something new to the table? Like what often people think about is culture fit. One thing that I ask, you know, business leaders to think about who have growing teams is culture contribution. In what ways are they adding to the mix of our team and our culture, not just fitting in with it, being another person that's going to be part of our echo chamber? Yeah, I love that, Nikki. And I will sort of add, I think my advice to early stage founders when it comes to this is the way you start is the way you're going to scale. And so putting these things in place really early on is really important. That said, though, it's hard when you're a small team. You know, you might have three co-founders who all happen to be men, and then you're on a back foot when it comes to creating and, you know, a team with diverse voices within it. And so, like, I think for those people, your next hire is going to be really crucial, but also Mm -hmm. so are your advisors, your directors, your mentors. Mm -hmm. How do you think about building a diverse sphere of influence around yourself that kind of counteracts the the blind spots that you will have as a, a team of founders who all come from fairly similar backgrounds? The other advice that I have for early stage founders is to make sure that your actions match your words. There's a lot of people who say really nice, well-intentioned things about building diverse teams, but then when it comes to actually making the decision, they hire people who look just like them. And if I can sort of give an example of what not to do, there was actually one quite recently, the the founder of Kiki that just raised New Zealand's largest seed investment round. I think they're in that same position where they have two, maybe three founders who are all men and they raised investment and were hiring, I think, three new roles. And they were did absolutely best practice post on LinkedIn about how they're a team of three men, but their user base is predominantly women. They can't grow the business as a team of all men. And so they really want to create diversity within the team. They want to hire women. These are the three roles. They were rightly celebrated for that post. A lot of senior influential people in the ecosystem, senior influential women in the ecosystem shared their post far and wide. They got 450 applications for the roles of $0 of advertising spend and they hired two dudes. So, you know, like it was so disappointing because it was like, you're so close, you're doing so well, you you know what you have to do, but still when it comes to the actual hiring decision, you've deepened your lack of diversity on the team rather than creating this opportunity to fix it. Mm. It is a, we're not obviously not going to solve it in one panel, but I so appreciate your thoughts and your time and we need to have you back and have these discussions continually. Kristen and Nikki, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Scotty. Thanks for having us. You can follow Kristen Hunter and Nikki Trigano on LinkedIn to find out more about their work. And we thank them again for joining us. And that's it for the bootstrap for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the bootstrap startups from scratch podcast and join in the conversation. You can also follow the product bus on most platforms and interact with the bootstrap posts there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. 
It was developed by me, Scotty Owen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee, edited by Sammy Perriman, with sound design and mixed by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.